These in the Bible uh, in the pew. Turn to Luke chapter 1, which is actually page 1047. Nope, 10, 1017. These are my glasses. <laughs> yes, 1017. And we are going to. Read from Luke chapter 1, 39 through 56. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary returned, and Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, when your son walked on the earth, Crowds flocked. Many things were said. Many things foolish. Many things hopeful. His word was heard. His, his word was forgotten. His word was cherished. Those crowds even... They even reached out thinking if we would but touch the hem of his garment, we will be made whole. Lord, give us your whole son. Dress us up in him that he would be glorified. Work in our hearts by your word as you promised. 
Oh Lord, we ask that you would work with us to the full desert of your Son. And if you love him, we pray in his name. Listen. Oh, men of common sense, listen. Oh, men of faith, listen. The eternal son became a baby. Shut up and celebrate, or the celebration will shut you up. Oh, men of knowledge, you have said things like that are ridiculous. But God says, my son has become a man. Oh, men of common sense, you have said, sorry. The world just doesn't work that way. But God says, my son has become the savior. Oh, men of faith, you have said, these deeds are exactly what we long for. But God says, I did not send amazing events as your salvation. I sent my son as your savior. Oh, men of knowledge, listen. Oh, men of common sense, listen. Oh, men of faith, listen. The eternal son became a baby. Shut up and celebrate, or the celebration will shut you up. But it is very hard to listen, isn't it? I know what you're thinking, man of knowledge. Did you hear the misogyny? The hateful, exclusionary, retrograde, fundamentalist othering? Addressing a crowd of adults as all men? And no man of faith, I know what you were thinking. He should say men and women. Or if he wants to be socially prophetic, maybe ladies and gentlemen. He's not becoming all things, all peoples. This is needlessly offensive. And the church needs to preserve its social legitimacy so the gospel will be heard. <laughs> and oh, Man of common sense, I know what you're thinking. He's going to get canceled and hard. Or he might get away with it. Let's watch. Oh, men of knowledge, listen. Oh, men of common sense, listen. Oh, men of faith, listen. The eternal son became a baby. Shut up and celebrate. Or the celebration will shut you up. Misogynist, understanding the story, hinges on Elizabeth and Mary being women. Luke addresses his gospel to a man named Theophilus, a Gentile man with some level of elite-like status. Among both Jews and Gentiles alike in the first century, women were the least culturally. In matters of law, economics, religion, and custom, women were always dependent in contrast to men. Now Elizabeth and Mary are filled with God's spirit and overflowing with his revelatory word. They are the epitome of lowliness and you must listen to them. And they are not incidentally women. They are both carrying babies nestled in their wombs. In their very bodies, they manifest a dependence and vulnerability 
that human folly rejects and sinful pride flees. They are lowly in this dependence. A woman cannot rule her own womb, her own conception. Elizabeth and her husband had proven this dependence by decades of barrenness. God proved this dependence with his announcement to Mary. All her faith could say is, how will this be since I am a virgin? This dominating dependence is stretched out over nine months. All our advanced medical assistance and skilled intervention only proves that dependence. Compared to the complexity and mystery knitting together in those nine months, there's not a lot that you can do for a child in utero. But if you do anything, the woman must submit to complicated efforts and invasions. Conceiving, bearing, and birthing children. It's an extraordinary responsibility and accomplishment, but it is the opposite of mastery and self-determination. There is more than being a woman to what Mary calls her humble estate. You must listen to her, not only because she is lowly, but because she knows she is lowly. She's not yet married, but betrothed. The marriage is still coming, and socially, her fiancé could break the engagement with only small difficulty. Mary is vulnerable. And all the more emphatically, when her pregnancy and her explanation become spoken anywhere. We know from later in Luke that her fiancé is not a rich man. Their temple offerings at the birth of their firstborn son fall into the category required from the poor. Her husband was not prudently marrying into wealth. She does not bring advantage to the union, only herself. The marriage in which she marries, and probably her own birth family, are residents of a marginal town in the Jewish nation. They are nobodies. The psalm that she delivers echoes the psalm sung week to week and day to day by the pious people of Israel. So she knows. And even the ordinary Gentile reader would know. Despite the glories of Solomon and the promises of Moses, the Jewish nation has been under the boot of the Roman Empire. She is a nobody and a conquered nation. But for the pious, that Roman occupation is a display of God's displeasure, of the nation's sinfulness, of the nation's dire need for God to rescue them. Talk about intersectionality. A woman, pregnant with child, not yet solidly wed, economically disadvantaged, with marginal social status, and knowingly under God's displeasure with all her people. She is the person closest to Christ's coming. And her song gives Luke's first large announcement of the gospel to his Gentile audience. O oh, men of knowledge, listen. O oh, men of common sense, listen. O oh, men of faith, listen. You must listen to lonely Mary. You must join in Mary's celebration or the celebration will shut you up. Mary's song is a poem of victory. Victory means that there are enemies to overcome. 
Mary's song is a poem of victory. Victory means a story that climaxes with the division of defeat on one side and delight on the other. You need to shut up and start singing with this young woman. Now Mary's song has three parts. Verses 46 to 50 give the setting of the incarnation. Mary is no woman set on a pedestal. Mary is the pedestal upon which we see God face to face in the Old Testament idiom. Verses 51 to 53 give the accomplishment of the incarnation. Victory, and not the possibility of victory, but victory with finality. Verses 54 to 55 give the goal of the incarnation to help Israel to fulfill God's fidelity to save. In each part, God, through Luke, addresses the Gentiles. He calls them to shut up their foolishness. Become like these women and celebrate the Savior. So that the first part, verses 46 to 50, the setting of the incarnation, the pedestal and the face-to-face fullness of God. In the Old Testament, God speaks of visiting his people in mighty deeds. God often reveals himself in symbolic manifestations, sometimes very ordinary, sometimes bizarrely overwhelming. Only on few and climactic occasions do we read of men beholding God. It is face-to-face rather than symbolic, but no, we never get a description of God's appearance. These apex moments of God revealing himself, describe only the setting. Exodus 24 is a key example. God has made Israel his nation and received him into his hospitality with the law and the tabernacle. And Moses and the priests and 70 elders of the people ascended Mount Sinai. Quote, And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is why Mary speaks so fully and rapturously of herself. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of the servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary is not only the woman bearing the incarnate son. She is the pedestal. When you look at the incarnate Christ, this is what you see. The lowest of the low, the most fundamentally dependent, the most unable to assert herself and achieve what God's covenant requires. You see her, championed by the God of Israel. You see her like that pavement of sapphire. What sort of king is the living God? 
He is the king who raises up nobodies from a sinful people. Mary's lowliness and faith is the setting of the incarnation, the pedestal that displays the incarnate son and the mercy which flows to generation after generation. Her rapturous praise and constant delight is the feast that you have while beholding the incarnate son. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What is it like to see him face to face, not in symbols? It is lowly and lifted up like Mary. The men of knowledge scoff at the incarnation. In the first century, among the elite of the Roman Empire, philosophy was overtaking traditional religion. The myths of Zeus and Apollo were embarrassingly human. No, Platonism, Stoicism were more knowledgeable, more profound. The universe might have some divine beings, but if they were divine, why would they, why would they be interested in humanity? The depth of the universe, the depth of the universe was a profound impersonal reality. Real men knew that the world was a mighty construct of powers and processes. True wisdom was mastering the indifference of the world by cultivating virtue. Oh, men of knowledge today, aren't you so very advanced, modern, and up-to-date? Your materialism and your evolution and your assertion that all religions are really the same, that's just the high-minded pride of the ancient Romans. Your ideas are just old folly. There is no face behind the universe. The only decision and will and accomplishment that matters is what human beings do. The closest thing to gods are us. Oh yes, marvel at a sunset, but remember it isn't a postcard. It's just something you think is marvelous. No one is trying to make you gasp and wonder. It's the variation of the spectrum. Not God's glory shared with you out of divine kindness. Oh, men of knowledge, shut up. The God of truth and love and generosity, so much more than a face behind the universe. The living God who made you to think and decide and accomplish. That God became a baby. I know you insist that miracles are impossible. You need to let the incarnate Christ argue with your certainty and dogmatism. You need to recognize that he has come. He is the victory. With a division of defeat on one side and delight on the other. Vomit up your pride and your pretended greatness. Become lowly like these ladies and celebrate the Savior. That division is the second part of Mary's song, verses 51 to 53. This is the accomplishment of the Incarnation, the victory, not just begun with that baby begotten, but established at his conception with decisive finality. The incarnation's accomplishment is victory and it is final. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. When the eternal son became a baby in the womb, God exerted his power to transform the world of sin. The hearts consumed with pride, not just deeds and plans of wickedness, but a resolute rivalry against God's goodness. The, un, the incarnate Son has undone their coordinated ambition and determined master plans. They will not succeed. Sin most certainly rages, and men of sin are all the rage. Their plans for victory are ruined. The powers that rule the world with oppression and abuse and banners of deceit and indulgence are thrown down. The Elizabeths and the Marys and the people who refuse to steal and plot and advance by wickedness, their exaltation and God's generosity is secure. The people who have been plundered and deprived by the way of the world are assured of satisfaction and abundance. The robber barons and the failed schemers, all those who learned the law of the jungle and obeyed it, they are being shown the exits. They will have none of what they so mercilessly, mercilessly piled up for themselves. Oh, men of common sense, you know how the world really works. The God you sometimes think about helps them and helps themselves. The God you mention is honest. You have to take care of you and your own and let other people do the same. Sometimes it works out fine and sometimes people get thrown under a bus. The common sense man of the first century, he knew that you could pray and maybe get results. And that the gods might just curse you for no reason. That's the way of the world. You are right. The world is hard and competitive. It chews up the weak. You are wrong. The God who made this world has come to save his people from the world. Oh, men of common sense, you need to shut up. Marvel at the incarnate Son and celebrate. And you men of faith, you have rallied around the goal of Mary's Son. You also are Gentiles, strangers with no claims on God's promises except that you overheard them. You stopped listening to the men of knowledge and the men of common sense. You've listened instead to God's word. The incarnate Son is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the center of the New Testament. There is so much to know and so much to say, but you too need to shut up and celebrate the incarnate Son. In the first century, 
Gentiles were drawn to the Jewish synagogue, to the God of the law, the creator of each one who claimed each one as his image bearer. Even without converting to Judaism, without circumcision and the full Jewish practice of holiness, very high par and not considered absolutely necessary, even just being a God-fearer, Judaism gave these Gentiles a better way to live and a better hope than the Gentiles' vision of death as shadows and forgetfulness. Repeatedly, these God-fearers are mentioned in the book of Acts. Repeatedly, Paul goes to the synagogue. They're mentioned as there. They hear him preach. What would they do with Christ and him crucified? What, what would they make of Mary? With God's word, and so many things better than the men of knowledge and the men of common sense. Would they celebrate the incarnate son? Would they stand in their own humble estate and behold his glory? Verses 54, 55. Mary speaks the goal of the incarnation to help Israel to fulfill God's fidelity to save his people. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Men of faith, you must ask, what does the questionable child of that nobody woman have to do with the great God of Israel? How is he helped for the holy descendants of Abraham? Remember how God spoke to Abraham he gave Abraham the covenant to him alone out of all the men on the face of the earth. Abraham had the covenant. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. He had mighty divine acts by which God protected him and prospered him while he sojourned among the godless nations. He had God's promise. His offspring would be beyond counting, like the stars in the sky. Abraham had all these things. But he did not have an heir. His wife had been barren for decades, and they both were old beyond any thought of having children. He had all this. He knew all this. Only God could give Abraham a baby. Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham looked upon his own body and realized that it was good as dead. There is no life from you. Abraham was lonely. And God made Sarah conceive. Oh, man of faith, you are a low sinner from your birth. And your firmest grip on God's good law will only drag you lower. Like Abraham, you have many divine things, many glorious truths, many great promises. But you cannot give birth to the life you need. You too must shut up and celebrate the incarnate Son. God has remembered his promises to Abraham and all his offspring. 
The incarnate Savior is your life from the dead, your righteousness from sin, and your reconciliation with God. The goal of the incarnation is God's fidelity to sinners. Christians, listen. I've only addressed you indirectly with this passage. But the word preached to your neighbors and your society is the same word that you have embraced. The Christ who walked among his, among his enemies, the Christ who walked among his enemies, calls him to peace. And such were you. Christians, listen. Like Theophilus, to whom Luke wrote his gospel, you live among a society of so-called knowledge and so-called common sense and so-called faith. I am sure you understand that you are tempted in all of those three directions. I'm also sure that you can taste how what they desperately need to hear is in fact the sweetness to which you listen to hear from Christ day in and day out. You not only have salvation. The Son has become a baby. The eternal Son himself is your Savior. He became man exactly to become your Savior. O oh, men of knowledge, listen! O oh, men of common sense, listen. O oh, men of faith, listen. The eternal son became a baby. Shut up and celebrate, or the celebration will shut you up. Are you still thinking? Don't say that. We are not all men. Are you still harping on my using the generic masculine? Oh, shut up and come celebrate. I address you as these three kinds of men because Luke's story announces a scandalous and life-changing summons. Become like these women. You are called to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Trust in the Son and be the bride of Christ. Take the lowliness that delights in the Christ child. Pitch your faith on the God who became man. Become what you often think is ridiculous. Live as what you often think is naive and unrealistic. Worship the one who comes because of your sinful lowliness. The son became a baby and grew into a man. And Jesus rescues his bride. He gives himself. The women are the heroines of this story. And no, they're not the heroes. Only the man, Jesus Christ, is the hero. That is why the son became a baby. Pray with me.
Father, glorify your Son in us and through us. Cause us to lighten him, to marvel. Bring to us the correction and the comfort that we need. Please seed and nurture our conversation in the Spirit with one another. That your gifts would abound and we would give them away. We pray in your Son's name.